Welcome and thanks for joining us today on the Abundance Podcast. We'll go ahead and get started in prayer. God, you're awesome. And I thank you for today. I thank you that we get to talk about your son and what he's done for us. I thank you that no matter what's going on in the world, we are more than conquerors. We are more than overcomers. And I thank you for the day that your son is going to come back and get us. And But until then, I just thank you that we get to go out and fulfill the Great Commission. We get to bring others to you. And I just thank you, Lord, for this day and thank you for this time together. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here and wherever any listener is listening. We just invite your presence and we thank you for today, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, today you may pick up on the fact that I'm sounding a little froggy this morning. (laughs) But that's all good. It's nothing too big, just the enemy is trying to bring some sickness against my body, but he's an idiot. I'm healed in the name of Jesus, and it's all good. So we're just going to keep on rolling. So today, we're in part 8 of the series entitled David's Journey. And as we get started, I want to make mention in case this is the first episode out of the eight in this series that you've caught, the purpose of going over the life of David isn't just to do it, you know, just for the sake of doing it. We're reading about David's journey so that we can see how faithful God has been with David and as a result, have hope that because God is no respecter of persons, he'll be just as faithful for us as he was for him. Our foundational scripture has been Romans 15, 4 which says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So we can have hope by listening to the experiences of David, learning lessons from his life, and using practical application to apply it to our own lives. Now the title of the last episode was Saul on the Hunt. And today, in part 8, this episode is called David on the Run. And you may be thinking, you know, isn't that kind of the same thing? You know, Saul on the hunt, David on the run? (laughs) And the answer is yes. (laughs) Okay, but you know, you got to come up with a different name for each episode. So that's that's what we're doing. And in reality, it kind of makes the point that, you know, David wasn't just on the run for a short amount of time. You know, I don't know the exact span of years, but it was a while. Now, in the last episode... One underlining theme was King Saul's paranoia towards David. It had him throwing a spear at him. It had him trying to kill him even though he was married to his own daughter. So David was actually Saul's son-in-law. And Saul's paranoia had him willing to try and chase down David for the purpose of killing him. So today, we're going to start out in 1 Samuel chapter 23. And we're not going to read through verses 1 through 5, but I want to make mention of what happens because it'll help us out later on in the series. So what we see is that David hears that the Philistines are fighting against Kilah, which was a city. Okay, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but Kilah. So he feels he should try and help them out. So he goes and asks God, and God tells him to go and attack the Philistines in order to help out the people of Kilah. So David then goes and tells his men they're afraid. So David asks God a second time, and again, he tells them, you know, to go and do the same thing. So David then listens, and they go on and save the people of Kalah. Next, we see that news of David's whereabouts makes its way to Saul. And that's where we'll pick back up. So 1 Samuel 23, verses 7 through 8. And that says, And Saul was told that David had gone to Kilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now, in terms of practical application, there's something really important here I want us to learn from the life of King Saul. And that is that there's always the potential to think we're hearing from God when we're not. (laughs) And that can be a pretty hard thing to swallow right there. You know, you're telling me, I can think I'm hearing from God and I'm not? Yes. However, at the same time, the goal in saying that is not to get you and I overly self-conscious, okay, where we second-guess everything we believe we're hearing from. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we'll begin to hear that still small voice. 
And the more we spend time reading the Bible, the more our desires will begin to change, even to the point where our wants and our desires will begin to line up with what God ultimately wants for us. But just like how a stick has two ends, we can be hearing from God and it seems like things are clicking, but that doesn't mean we're exempt from ever wandering over into trying to say our own desires are from God. And that's what we see King Saul doing here. You know, minus the time spent desiring to do things God's way. (laughs) But people told him David was in Keilah and he thought that God had delivered him into his hands. Now, we're not going to go verse by verse here with what happens next. But we see Saul calls all the people together to go find David and Keilah. And David finds out about it. He asks God what he should do, and God tells him to leave the city. And verse 14 tells us that David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. We also see Jonathan, who is King Saul's son, comes and strengthens David with words of encouragement. Verse 19, Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hekelah, something like that, which is on the side of Jeshimon? So what we see here is that the Ziphites, they ratted David out. They told Saul where he was located. And if that's not bad enough, This is particularly brutal because of who the Ziphites were. They were of David's own tribe, you know, the tribe of Judah. And you can see that in Joshua 15, 24. And practically speaking, have you ever had someone really close to you betray you? And if you haven't, you know, just give it some time. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying it has to be that way. And I'm not speaking that into your life. Okay. I'm just simply saying it happens. Now, in the history of people, I'm sure there was someone who thought that they could potentially be betrayed by someone else that they cared about. You know, that's kind of why there's prenups. You know, with marriage, you sign these prenups. Yeah, let's get married. Yeah, till death do us part. But just in case, you know. So in that type of situation, it does seem like, you know, they thought there was the potential for it. But I believe it'd be safe to say that a large majority of the time when betrayal happens, It's something that never even seemed possible. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself in a sort of situation and you're thinking, you know, how in the world did this happen? Now, along those same lines, if and when someone betrays you, the question is, are you going to allow it to quote unquote sink your ship? What I mean is, and I'm saying this because I'd guess a large portion of us have never thought about it this way. The problem is that most of the time, We care too much about what another individual or individuals, plural, thinks of us. Now, am I saying we shouldn't care about others? That we should hold others off at an arm's length? That we shouldn't let anyone get close to us? No, (laughs) absolutely not. God's desire for us is relationship. You know, he created Adam and Eve for the purpose of relationship. And likewise, we should develop relationships with others. We shouldn't desire to be an island all by ourselves. But what I'm saying is that it's up to us as to what degree we allow someone to hurt us when we're betrayed. And if you've never really thought about it like that and you're thinking, well, yeah, I can see that. Well, the thing is, it's easy to agree with that when it's someone like a boss or a coworker or, you know, someone you ran into from high school from a class reunion or something like that you know some sort of situation where you don't really know the person all that well but what if it's someone you love what if it's someone close to you like a friend or a relative or even a spouse and no (laughs) this isn't my way of venting about my wife okay don't don't read into this okay i'm just trying to make a point but i believe this is really important and just to prove that point We're going to look at the extreme example. What if the one who's been terrible towards you, however that may look, is a parent or even a spouse? Is that an excuse for our wheels to fall off? No. It's funny how Jesus told us in John 14, 1, you know, the famous verses of, you know, let not our heart be troubled, that we have a choice no matter what comes our way with whether or not we allow ourselves to be troubled, okay? And how that verse is used 
to apply to every area of our life. But then when something happens in our marriages, then that verse kind of goes to the wayside. Okay. Our spouse does something terrible towards us and they're truly in the wrong. And then all of a sudden it's okay to be hurt. Okay. It's like John 14, one, you know, you choose whether you let yourself be troubled. It's like that goes out the window because it has to do with our marriage and it shouldn't be that way. Regardless of what the situation is, regardless of where the hurt is trying to come from, we have a choice with whether or not we choose to be offended and hurt. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that we're to be robots. Are you evil or a terrible Christian if your spouse treats you like complete garbage and it affects you in some way, shape, or form? Okay, no, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that it doesn't have to be that way. If it was impossible for us to not be offended and to not be hurt, even when the potential offense comes from our spouse or from our parents or someone that we really care about, if that was impossible, then Jesus wouldn't have told us about John 14, 1 and told us to let not our heart be troubled. So all I'm trying to say is that we have a choice with the way we respond. Because here's the truth. If your parent or your spouse or whoever it was that was treating you completely terrible came up to me and said or did the same thing that was really ruffling your feathers, if they did that to me, I can assure you it wouldn't affect me the way that it does you. And why is that? It's because I don't value their opinion the same way that you do. And really that's because I don't know them. Because their opinion doesn't matter to me, what they say or do will not shift my emotions in a negative direction. And really, why would it? Because if I only see this person one time ever in my life, why would I let what they say, no matter what it is, bother me? You know what I mean? But if it's a situation where around that individual all the time, it's, it's someone very close to us, the potential is there because we value their opinion to allow hurt and negative emotions to take hold of us. So all that to say, we simply need to recognize the next time we get all offended that the reason we've allowed ourselves to get all offended is because we're placing more value on what a certain individual thinks about us, no matter who it is, than how Jesus feels about us. So when we find ourselves in that sort of a situation, we need to remind ourselves, you know, that we're the apple of Jesus' eye. And if we're focused on that, Who cares what someone else thinks or says about us? And believe me, I'm not saying this from (laughs) a position of being all high and mighty, okay? I'm preaching to myself here. And my desire for myself is as I continue to learn about this, to continue to try and get it rooted and grounded inside of me, that when a potential offense comes, my hope is that I remember what the word says about this and everything that we're talking about today. And that I don't get offended or at the least shorten the distance of time between when I take the offense and when I realize, oh, you know, whether it's a day or a week or whatever it is, oh, I got offended. Let me come back to the word. I can let not my heart be troubled. I don't have to get offended by this. So back to David. We see the people from his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, narc him out and tell Saul where he was. And King Saul responds in verse 21 by saying, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. So King Saul is showing that it's all about him. That's pretty much been the theme of this whole series when it comes to King Saul. It's all about him. And again, this is another example of him claiming something that isn't from God. Because his sole desire (laughs) is to kill David. So to end chapter 23, we see David is on the run. It even gets to the point where David was on a side of a mountain and King Saul and his men were on the other side. And just as they were getting close, verse 26 says they were encircling David and his men. A messenger came and told Saul that the Philistines were invading their land. So Saul and his army headed back and David was able to escape. And that's just another example of how God can provide a way for us to be rescued from even the most dire situations in our lives. 
Now I'm going to interject another scripture here that's kind of a rabbit trail, but it also was written by David. And it's found in Psalm 35. Now just to be clear, there isn't conclusive proof that this is precisely the same time frame that we're in now, you know, in the story of David, where Saul is chasing him. But I personally believe it is. In my Bible, when you go back to Psalm 34, there's extra writing at the beginning of the chapter that says, A Psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. And if you listen to the last episode, that's something we already discussed. But again, just because Psalm 35 follows Psalm 34, that doesn't mean it's written in the same time period with what we're covering today. But I personally believe you'll be able to see why I think it was in this same time frame of what we're discussing today. So we're going to read Psalm 35 verses 1 through 8. And it says, Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly, and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction, let him fall. So here we see David mention things like, in verse 3, Stop those who pursue me. Verse 4, Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Verse 6, let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. Verse 7, for without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit which they have dug without cause for my life. And really, here's the main one I'm wanting to focus on and that's in verse 8. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction let him fall. So again, I believe these verses are talking about King Saul. But even if they weren't, there's a practical lesson we need to learn when it comes to what David is talking about in verse 8. He's saying in a nutshell, because he, Saul, is trying to come against me and I've done nothing wrong, God bring the same destruction against him that he desires for me. Now I won't comment on this too much more because I don't want to get ahead of myself with where we're going in the life of David. But I want to talk for a second about how we're to pray when people are coming against us. It's important to understand that you and I are under a different covenant than what David was under. Right now, grace and mercy are being extended to every individual. Okay, In this age of grace, God is no longer pouring out his anger and wrath on people. And that's solely because Jesus died for everyone's sins. And each person's sins aren't being held against them. If they were, then Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it wasn't enough. Now, I know that'll rub some of you the wrong way because (laughs) there are some people, even entire religions out there, that pride themselves on groveling in the mud, you know, thinking they have to put themselves through, you know, penance or or do a bunch of stuff to make up for the mistakes that they've made. And if that's you, if you're someone who thinks he or she has to do something or feel bad for an amount of time after you made a mistake to quote unquote, you know, make up for it. What you're really saying, if you boil it down, is that what Jesus did wasn't enough. And rather than letting that beat you up, understand what a privilege it is that Jesus loved you that much to pay the price to the point where all you need to do is, you know, recognize you messed up, repent, which just means to change your direction. And move on. And might I add, some people are taught that they've got to try and ask God for forgiveness for every sin they make. <laughs> and and what I want to say is, if you believe that, well, what about the sins that you miss? Is that going to keep you from heaven? Because the Bible says, when we know to do good and don't do it, to us that is sin. <laughs> so, man, 
we're screwed if we have to acknowledge every single sin that we've made, okay? The truth is, Jesus already paid for it, okay? Repent, move in the opposite direction, don't continue to do the same thing, and just move on with life because Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done. To help understand what I'm describing, an example would be how God's desire is for you to wait until you're married to have sex. And with that, only to have sex with your spouse for the rest of your life. And for the sake of the example, you know, if someone were right in the middle of having sex in the very act and it dawned on you, hey, I'm not being obedient. Repentance would be to stop what you're doing right then, not continue on and the next day then decide to make a change, but to stop right then. Now, that being said, with whatever the quote-unquote sin may be, it's great to repent at whatever stage you're in, okay? I don't want to give the impression that we can get to a point where it's no longer good to repent anymore, okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is whenever we first recognize we messed up, we should then repent, which is to stop what you're doing, turn, and go the complete opposite direction from where you're headed. But then once you've repented and you've changed your direction, You don't need to sulk and try to feel bad for what you've done. The past is in the past. We should be thankful for what Jesus already bought and paid for us to have, which is a freedom from sulking and needing to put ourselves through a bunch of junk to try and make up for the sin. Jesus already made up for the sin, okay? He already paid the price through his death, burial, and resurrection. So again, you and I are in a different covenant than what David was under. David was under a covenant to where If you did good, you got good. And if you did bad, you got bad. It was all about you. So in this situation where Saul is chasing him, in the dispensation that he was under, he wasn't out of line to ask God to place the same judgment on him that they wanted to put on him, (laughs) on David. And all that to get to the point that I'm wanting to make. And that point is found in Ephesians 6 verse 12. And that says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What that means for us in the new covenant, the covenant of grace, we're not actually fighting against people. Okay, Our fight is against the demonic powers who are influencing those people. And man... With all the things that are happening over in Israel and all the demonic things that the Hamas people have done to the Israel people, killing babies and beheading them and killing the elderly and the women and and just, you know, horrific things. In the natural, it seems like we're fighting people, but really what we're fighting is the demonic influence over those people. So for us today, it would be wrong to say something like, God, I ask that you get my coworker. Make it hell on earth for him here. Kill him, God. Okay? That's not how we should be praying. Okay? Now, that being said, I just mentioned the things in Israel and all those things that are happening. That's not me saying <laughs> that the Israelite people should just lay down their weapons and just ask for peace. No, okay? There is a time for peace and there is a time for war. And I truly believe that the Israel people have an obligation to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth, (laughs) you know, to defend themselves so that those people can't do that to their people again, okay? But again, back to David here. We should be praying against the demonic powers who are influencing those people that we come into contact on a daily basis. And I know that's really broad, okay? Because there's even Christians today who've gotten into a ditch and think that their only job is to pray against the demonic activity. But the way in the Bible that we saw Paul in the New Testament reach people was by sharing the gospel with those individuals. Not just trying to, you know, sit back and pray and, you know, not enter into to doing anything. No, he went into that land and he started preaching to them. And as a result, things changed. And that's a whole different topic, okay? and I've you know I've kind of touched on some things in Israel and all that, and that's a that's a whole different discussion. But I'm gonna keep moving on. But my point is, our fight isn't against people; it's against the devil 
and the demonic influence over people. And there is a difference between someone chopping the heads off of babies and someone stealing your stapler at work or trying to get you in trouble at work, okay, something like that. Okay, sin is sin, and it's all demonic. But the way in which we respond is different. So, moving on. Next, in chapter 24, it begins with King Saul returning from defending his land from the Philistines and going back on the hunt for David. Saul takes 3,000 of his own men to go and try and hunt David down, and I believe... At this point, David has 600 men. There's been you know, a couple different times where it said 400 or 600, and I believe at this point he has 600. But anyways, next we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 3 through 7. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's rope. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him, because he had cut Saul's rope. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, and the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words, and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. This starts off with talking about how King Saul went into the cave. Now, I'm reading the New King James Version, and it says Saul went in there to attend to his needs. Okay, that's the phrasing it uses. The King James Version says he went in there to cover his feet, which probably meant to rest or take a nap. Okay, Another popular version says he went in there to relieve himself implying that he was going to the bathroom. Okay, now I don't really believe that that's what happened. And and really, I'm not concerned with what actually happened, why he went into the cave or what he did when he was in there. The point is that he went into the cave. And the second part of verse 3 says that David and his men were already in there. To me, this is important because I had always envisioned David as this guy who snuck in after Saul, like he had this crafty plan. And that's just not what I'm seeing here. Okay, I'm seeing he was in the cave already and Saul came to him. And practically speaking, I want to mention how this makes me think about how we tend to dream up, you know, the way that God is going to do things, how he's going to use us even. Now, there's nothing wrong with us using our imaginations and dreaming a little, okay? Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. But here we see David is on the run from Saul. He goes in a cave and Saul comes to him. Now, I promise I'm going somewhere with this, okay? (laughs) Next we see in verse 4, David's men saying, This is the day which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand. What I see here is these men trying to influence David into what they thought God had been telling David. But, you know, unless I'm not remembering correctly, at no time did God tell David that he was to kill King Saul. He had used Samuel, the prophet, to tell David that he'd be the next king and he anointed him with oil and everything like that. But in no way did God tell him he was to take matters into his own hands and that God wanted to wipe out the very person he anointed to be king. Okay. Now, for me personally, I have a situation in my life separate you know, from the negative influence that David had from the others. Okay, I've got great influence in my life. But where I believe God is opening up doors for me that he's slowly showing me and bringing to pass what I believe he shared with me years ago. You know, that is as as long as I heard him correctly, (laughs) which I believe I did, but like we already discussed, there always is the potential that we could read into things or even completely mishear what God is trying to share with us. I'm not exempt from that either. And the reason I'm sharing this is, you know, not just to talk about myself, but it's to give an example where maybe you can relate to some degree with some of the things that I'm sharing from my personal life. Because, you know, I believe I'm at a place where it would be easy to get out in front of God and do things in my own strength. And yes, if I did get out in front of God, he could turn it around for the good, you know. But but really, why go that route if you don't have to? And this always makes me think of Joseph from the book of Genesis. You know, Joseph and the coat of many colors. Joseph believed he had a dream from God 
and he shared that dream with his brothers and his dad, that they would one day bow down to him, and his brothers ended up selling him into slavery. Then I believe 13 or so years later, he becomes second in charge over all the land, over Egypt. And once he was put in a position of power like that, instead of going back to his fatherland and forcing his dream to come true, where his dad and his brothers would bow down to him, he just continued on doing what God was leading him to do. He kept being faithful right where he was at. And ultimately, as the story continues, that dream comes to pass. Definitely not, I'm sure, how he imagined it, but ultimately, his dad and his brothers bow down to him. The point is, when he was in a position where he, in the natural, could force what he believed God had shared with him into happening, he didn't. He allowed God to be God, and it all came to pass. Now, I could easily get on a tangent here, but I'm not going to. That is not in support of this ultra-sovereignty of God doctrine that's really prevalent in the body of Christ today where everything God wants to happen just automatically happens. That doctrine is, in the nicest way I can say it, in the shortest way I can say it, is incorrect. Joseph had a part to play. Okay, David had a part to play. You and I have a part to play. Okay, God has a plan for us, but what he wants to happen doesn't automatically happen. He gave us free will. Okay, and that's a whole different topic. But anyways, back to David. So God had never instructed David to kill King Saul. But here these other well-intentioned men try to influence David into doing something that God hadn't told him to do. And up to this point in this series, we've been seeing how time and time again, King Saul is the one who continues to not listen to God and do things that are wrong. But here we see David is the one that makes the mistake. He gives in and listens to the men. It says he arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but I believe this was a mistake on David's part. And I believe that because of David's response in verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 say, Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. What we're seeing is that David categorized something as little as cutting the corner off of Saul's robe as going, quote-unquote, against him. And you may be thinking, well, isn't David the one who's on the run from Saul? And he hasn't done anything wrong to deserve it. You know, he, he should have killed him. And, you know, all those are fair arguments. God had told David he'd be the next king. And back in those days... You killed the person in charge and took their position. And if David had done that, there probably wouldn't have been too much resistance from the people in that day, especially with how prideful and evil they could see that Saul had become. But that wasn't what God had told David to do. And because David honored God more than any man's opinion, he knew he had gotten outside of God's will for him. And as a result, he was troubled. But not only that, for listening to the men and giving in to their opinion and influence over what God had desired for him. Next we see David didn't allow his men to touch King Saul and Saul left the cave. And really, all of this is a good example of how practically speaking, we shouldn't compare our walk with Jesus to others. You know, for example, God is not against someone drinking. You know, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine and that wasn't Welch's grape juice, okay, it was wine with alcohol in it. The Bible talks about it being okay to drink, but not drinking to the point of drunkenness. But again, no matter what you've been told, the Bible isn't against alcohol consumption. Now that being said, for me personally, drinking is a sin. And without going too far into this, I was a drunk, (laughs) okay? And yes, I'm a new creation, old things have passed away, and I've become new, so on and so forth, and I'm not making light of that. I'm just acknowledging, yes, I am totally brand new, and I am more than an overcomer. But I personally had Holy Spirit minister to me one time, and he said that if I would give up alcohol, he would give me the desires of my heart. And it was kind of similar to like Adam and Eve, how they weren't supposed to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what, you know, that's the scriptures that he used to reveal that to me. And... 
And let me tell you, God has been above and beyond faithful. And it's crazy when I go back and I look back at the things that God has done and how they've been, you know, maybe I wouldn't have thought that I wanted it a certain way, but it was in the line of what I desired and it was better than what I could have ever imagined. I remember this one time I was in college and I was like Van Wilder. I almost flunked out. So I switched my degree in like my fifth year so that I could get some sort of degree in six years and move on from college. So I got into a program called entrepreneurship, which the way I would describe it is it's a diet business degree. It's it's a business degree basically without a lot of the business classes that you had to take in order to get that degree. It had a lot of similar classes, but there were some basic ones that you had to take in order for the business degree that you didn't have to take with this degree that I ended up with. But anyways, in this entrepreneurship class I had, one of them I had, we had to write down the things that we liked to try and spur up a business idea of how we could start a business. And fast forward to 2015, I'm running after Jesus and I just happened to go back through some of the papers before I was throwing them out. I was making sure there weren't, there weren't some in there from my college days that I wanted to keep. And anyways, I found this paper and I may not remember them all, but it, it said, you know, what are the things you're into? And I says, well, I like dealing with people. I like being outside and I enjoy like working with my hands and stuff like that. Something like along those lines. And when I found that at the time, I was involved at my church. I was employed there. And there's a, a daycare there, a child care that has, you know, at the time it was probably about 100 kids a day with 15 to 20 employees separate from all the employees with our church staff. But so I was around people. I was working with people. I was working outside because I was actually taking care of the grounds. I was cutting the grass and, and doing all that stuff. So I was working with my hands. I was outside. I was enjoying the weather. I was dealing with people. And it was just like, man, like I wasn't even living for God back when I was in college. And here, fast forward seven, eight years, God's got me in a place where I'm doing exactly what I wrote on that paper, the things that would bring fulfillment in my life. So I was just like, wow, God, God's so good. And, you know, along with those desires of my heart, you know, I could throw in getting married, having kids, having a family, all that sort of thing. And that has been something that God has brought into my life. And it wasn't because I worked really hard at it or tried to go on Tinder or or some of these Christian dating apps. And, you know, I'm not against a Christian dating app if it's done with the right heart. I'm definitely not for Tinder. I think that's all just sex driven. But anyways, um... God just brought all these things to me. He brought me the desires of my heart when I was just seeking after him first, running after him, and all these things were added unto me. Now, again, Holy Spirit ministered to me that if I stopped drinking, he would give me the desires of my heart. Now, does that mean you should stop drinking? (laughs) I don't know. You know, what's Holy Spirit told you? Like I said, God's not against drinking, but for me, I couldn't just drink a couple. For me, it made no sense. Why would you drink a couple and just get a little buzz when you could get hammered? You know, for me, uh, there was no on-off switch. And I currently don't drink not because of that, okay, that back when I was a drunk, it was a challenge to only have a couple, okay? The reason I don't drink now is because Holy Spirit gave me a word (laughs) and it ministered to me and I don't want to go back on that word. Not because of what I can get from God, but because, man, look at all he's done for me. When we have people in our life that we really care about, if we truly care about them, we don't do things to hurt them on purpose. You know what I mean? So I don't want to do something to go against what the Holy Spirit has done for me when he's been so good to me. So for me to drink, that would be walking in sin. And I'm making the comparison here with what just happened with David, he knew that God, time and time again, had come through for him with the lion and the bear and the giant Goliath, so on and so forth. So for him to give in to the opinion of his men and do something God hadn't directed him to do by cutting Saul's robe, as small as that was, it may have been technically in the sin category for him. 
Next, we're going to see how God can turn even our mistakes to the good. And we're going to read verses 8 to 22. David also arose afterward, went out from the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So David knew he shouldn't have cut Saul's robe. But in these verses... He uses it to show King Saul that he had the opportunity to kill him if that was what he had been trying to do all along. But of course, you know, we know that he had no desire to do that. So we see here, when Saul leaves the cave, that David comes out and gets Saul's attention. He even goes as far as to honor Saul and the office that he held as king by bowing down even though Saul was trying to kill him. But basically he tells him, you know, I could have killed you, the people were telling me I should, but I have no desire to do that. I'm not against you. Look, I was close enough to cut a piece of your robe off, so I easily could have killed you, but I'm not your enemy. Now, there's a saying you've probably heard me say before, and it goes, we need to do our best to keep our head right and our heart right with whatever comes our way. So keep our head right and our heart right. And what that's describing is having a heart for God. Every born-again believer, at a heart level, knows whether they're listening to God or not. You know, we can sometimes fool others, but deep down, we can't fool ourselves. And we're definitely not fooling God. And that's why David was able to make the statements that he did. In verse 12, he said, Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 15, Therefore let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. So David had no jealousy or deceit in him towards taking Saul's position. He knew that God had already declared to him, back in front of his father and all his brothers, that one day he'd be the king. So why try to make it come to pass in his own effort? <laughs> That'd be dumb. Just keep being obedient and faithful with what God was asking him to do. And how did Saul respond? Well, he responded with genuine remorse and what I would call temporary repentance. And why would I say it's temporary? Well, because I've already read ahead. <laughs> I, know what, I know what Saul does in chapter 26. But right now, King Saul realizes how much of an idiot he's been, even to the point where verse 16 says he wept. Okay, he was crying. He even acknowledges that David has only rewarded him with good, but he's rewarded him with evil. And when I read it, I see Saul even blessing David with what he says in the second part of verse 19. And that was, Therefore may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And Saul even goes as far as to say in verse 20, 
that he knows that David will be the king one day. And next we see that Saul returns back home and David and his men return to the stronghold. And you probably can learn something from that, just that simple phrase. You know, just because Saul apologized and like I said, had temporary remorse, that didn't mean that David and all his men were just going to go back with him and act like nothing happened. You know, no, there needed to be some guardrails. Now, we're going to skip over chapter 25. And I'd suggest if you've been following along in this series that you go back and read it yourself. It's where David has an interaction with a wicked name named Nabal. And at the end of this interaction, Nabal dies and his wife ends up becoming David's wife. But not only that, David also takes another wife. So, you know, two wives in one chapter. <laughs> now, not in relation to that, okay? We're not to take multiple wives. But go ahead and read over this chapter because there's some really good and practical stuff that can be learned from it. And, you know, basically I'm just skipping over it because, you know, if I don't, this will end up being a 40-part series. So, <laughs> and that takes us to chapter 26. It starts right back up with King Saul going against that heartfelt apology we saw in chapter 24. So 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 through 3. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hekelah, opposite of Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hekelah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness. Next we see in verse 4, David sends out spies to verify that Saul is back hunting him again. And sure enough, you know, he is. <laughs> so David then goes down to take a look for himself. And not only was he able to see where King Saul generally was camping, he specifically saw where he laid his head. Verses 6 through 12. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishah the son of Zeruiah. Man, I'm trying with these names. <laughs> the brother of Joab saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishah said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishah came to the people by night, and there Saul lay asleep within the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear, right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So one thing I'd like to point out is that again, we see another example where someone is trying to influence David into doing something that God didn't ask him to do. And in this case, you know, different from how David gave in and cut Saul's robe in chapter 24, verse 4, he doesn't give in. And this really was just another example of how he was a man after God's own heart, which was the complete opposite of Saul. We already saw in chapter 24 that Saul had remorse and even cried, knowing he messed up. But then in chapter 26, he goes right back out hunting David again. And in this situation, David is given a second chance to show that he truly learned his lesson from the last time, and he passes the test. He doesn't give in to the pressure he faced from his own men, but instead sticks with what he believes God had asked him to do. And practically speaking, we have the same ability today to learn from our mistakes and make the same choice as David. God does not, let me repeat, God does not tempt us to try and bring junk our way to quote-unquote teach us something. And not only that, he's given every believer his spirit to guide and direct us. He's given each of us authority, power, and free will to choose not to give in to whatever temptation comes our way. James 1, 13-15 says, Let no one say, When he is tempted, I am tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. (laughs) He doesn't tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he, talking about you and I, is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So why didn't David give in and kill Saul this time? Because he was a man after God's own heart, and he wasn't envious of what Saul had, which you know was his title as king. David only desired what God wanted for his life. Now, this is pretty funny when you think about it. Instead of killing Saul, David decides to show him again that he's not out to kill him. Verses 11 and 12 tells us that they went into the camp and took Saul's spear and water jug that were right next to him when he was sleeping. And and this is probably the same spear that Saul had attempted to, to throw at David to try and take his life several times. David then yells to Abner, who was in charge of keeping Saul safe, to look for Saul's water jug and spear. And when David is speaking, King Saul recognizes that it's his voice. Next, we're going to look at verses 18 through 21. And he said, Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. So now, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. So again, we see Saul having to have something extreme happen in order for him to see the error in his ways. And you and I have the potential to really learn from this. It's in our best interest to desire the things of the Lord, to listen to what he's trying to share with us on a daily basis and not have to go through the school of hard knocks several times, making the same mistakes over and over before we learn, hey, yeah, I probably shouldn't do this. This is probably not God's will for me. Last, we see King Saul again, blesses David with his words, and King Saul and David depart and go their own separate way. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on the Abundance Podcast.